All right. My brother closest to me in age, his name is Rory. And when we were little, one time our dad busted us jumping on a bed we should not have been jumping on. Common problem, right? Nothing new. And so our dad came in and he scolded us and he told us not to do it again. And we said, yes, sir. And this is where repentance should have kicked in. We should have turned from our evil bed jumping ways (laughs) and followed our father's instructions And we kind of did. I mean, as long as he was nearby, we were not jumping on the bed. But as soon as we felt like he was out of range, we went back at it. But this time was different. We were smarter. We jumped quieter than we had before. And then when we heard our dad coming back down the hallway, we stopped. And he poked his head in the room, and he said, were you boys jumping on the bed? And with cheeks flushed red, breathing heavy, standing on the bed. (laughs) We said, no, no, Mm -mm. Mm -mm. absolutely not. Our repentance from jumping on the bed was not so sincere, so we got in extra trouble, not just for continued jumping, but now this time also for lying. We were not good at repentance. Repentance is a Christian concept that sometimes seems confusing. Right? We might ask, what role does repentance play when salvation is by grace through faith alone? Why do we have to talk, talk about repentance? Doesn't that just sort of muddy up the waters of grace? Or aren't we adding requirements on top of faith? Sometimes we can feel uneasy about the word repentance The word repentance has also been muddied up by popular culture. Repent, it it seems more at home on the sandwich board of an end times zealot than it does in any sort of conversation among God's family. What else? The the word just seems not that appealing. I, I mean, no one does hashtag repent. We all do hashtag blessed. Uh, we don't sing songs like amazing repentance. Right? Or victory in repentance. That's not the line. This morning we sang holy, 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 not repent, repent, repent. So of all the concepts in Christianity, repentance may not break into the top ten necessarily. The word seems old-fashioned, unnecessary, unappealing. And yet according to Scripture, repentance is utterly vital at the start of our Christian faith and in the continuance of our Christian faith. What's more in our passage today we're going to see it is entirely possible to get repentance wrong. Now, let me give you a very simple working definition of repentance, perhaps too simple, but I think this one works great, and it's certainly not original with me. Repentance simply means turn. And in Christian thinking, repentance is turning from our sin and turning to Christ. It's not just plucking weeds it's growing roses we're turning away from our sin and we're going to walk in the pursuit of jesus christ our passage in judges today is a primer on repentance and the people of israel set a negative example for us in their repentance and from that negative example we're going to pull some positive applications and so the right response to our study this morning shouldn't be feelings of defeat or guilt but rather awe at god's love for you and renewed encouragement to walk in obedience. So my goal in preaching this passage today 
is for you to turn from your sin and turn to God because of his astounding love for you. To do that, I want to show you in the passage four characteristics of true repentance. So we're going to start reading in Judges chapter 10, verse 6. And we're going to go through chapter 11, verse 11. So I want you to follow along with me as I read. We pick up with a familiar refrain in verse 6. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook the Lord and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years they oppressed all the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and the house of Ephraim, and Israel was in great distress. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. The Lord replied, When the Egyptians... The Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Malonites oppressed you, and you cried to me for help. Did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. But the Israelites said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord, and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. When the Ammonites were called to arms and camped in Gilead, the Israelites assembled and camped at Mizpah. The leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, Whoever will launch the attack against the Ammonites will be the head of all those living in Gilead. Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a group of adventurers gathered around him and followed him. Sometime later, when the Ammonites made war on Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, didn't you hate me? Drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to him, nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites and you will be our head over all who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, Suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them, and he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. All right. So this passage all about repentance it is the dominant theme in all that we've read this morning and i want to show you in this passage 
four characteristics of true repentance. So if you're taking notes, the first characteristic of true repentance from this passage is true repentance is an ongoing pursuit of God. True repentance is an ongoing pursuit of God. Chapter 10, verses 6 through 9 lay this out for us. Our story opens with that sad, familiar refrain in verse 6. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but there's something different about the description of their sin this time around. It's worse than ever. Look at what follows in verse 6 as the writer describes their idolatry. He says, They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, the gods of the Philistines. Now here's why you, as a reader who started at the beginning of Judges and is going through now to chapter 10, this is why you as the reader ought to make this noise when you read those descriptions. <gasps> because they serve the Baals and the Ashtoreths. Those are, just, those are general names for male and female fertility gods all over Canaan. They serve the gods of Aram. Back in chapter 3, God delivered Israel from the king of Aram through Othniel, and now Israel has gone back to worship that nation's gods. They served the gods of Moab. Once upon a time, God delivered Israel from Eglon, king of Moab, through a left-handed deliverer named Ehud. God delivered Israel from Moab. Now Israel has gone back and now chases after the gods of Moab. The gods of the Ammonites. Once upon a time, the Ammonites teamed up with Moab to oppress Israel. Now Israel embraces the Ammonite gods. The gods of the Philistines. At the end of chapter 3, a quick little snapshot of a deliverer named Shamgar who delivers God's people from the Philistines. And what does Israel do here? They chase after the gods of the Philistines. Israel has gone deeper than ever in her idolatry. They adopt the gods of the nations in every direction around them and the gods of all these nations they were previously oppressed by. The writer of Proverbs nails it when he says, like a dog returning to its vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. That's what Israel does here time and time again. That one of Israel's great mistakes in their repentance is that their normal repentance is short-lived and shallow. It's short-lived in that as long as they had a God-fearing leader, well then the people of Israel walked with God. But as soon as the Othniel or the Ehud or the Deborah or the Gideon died, they immediately go back to their idol-worshiping ways. It's a short-lived repentance. It's also a shallow repentance. Their pattern of returning to idol worship shows us that they thought repentance was only necessary in so much as it wooed God to deliver them. We'll repent enough just to get God on our side and just to get the relief that we need and then we're going to go back to our idol-chasing ways. Theirs was a repentance that was shallow. It was behavior change without heart change. Apology without awe. It was confession without conviction. From Israel's bad example... We learn a positive alternative that repentance is an ongoing pursuit of God. 
It might help us if we think about repentance in this way. Repentance is often illustrated, as I did at the beginning of our time together, as a, a person walking in one direction, and then they stop and they turn and they go another direction. That's a very simple, quick turn. But imagine if you're not walking, you're driving a car, and you realize you're going in the wrong direction. That turnaround, that U-turn, is not so simple. You've got to hit the brakes. It takes a bit to slow down. You've got to find the right place to make the turn. You've got to navigate traffic before you head back in the right direction. This has never happened to me, but it's probably happened to you <laughs> in a car somewhere. My wife's out of town today. Don't ask her if this is true or not. A U-turn is different for someone in a car than it is for someone walking. Imagine you're driving a cruise ship and you're going in the wrong direction. What's it going to take to turn that ship around? It's going to take a long time, a wide berth. It's going to take quite a bit of effort. And so it might be helpful for us to think about repentance in these ways. It helps us to realize that first, God doesn't work repentance in us instantaneously. For some of us, repentance is an ongoing process. Not for some, but for all of us, it's an ongoing process. The awareness of sin and the desire to change comes gradually. It's not just a one-and-done deal. And so there may be many slips and falls on the way to holiness. I think the image of the ship is also helpful for us here. Some sins are small in scope. It doesn't take a lot to turn from those and walk in holiness. Some sins are rooted much, much deeper. And it takes more effort, more time, more prayer, more sweat for us to get to a place of holiness and freedom. And so we shouldn't grow discouraged when our repentance is a long repentance or a hard repentance, but we should know that repentance is a continual war on sin. It's not sinless perfection. But we do not grow comfortable with our sin. We do not justify it. We continue in our battle against it. Against it. So repentance is a journey. It's not a moment. It's 10,000 little prayers, not one grand prayer. It's not sinless perfection, but it is constant striving. True repentance is an ongoing pursuit of God. Here's a second characteristic of true repentance from our passage. True repentance is motivated by God's worth. True repentance is motivated by God's worth. Chapter 10, verses 10 through 14 illustrates this for us. So as you might expect, because we've been down this road multiple times in the book of Judges, Israel has a moment of clarity, and they cry out to God for relief. And look at how God replies to Israel's prayer. Look at verse 11. The Lord replied, when the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Malonites oppressed you, and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you've forsaken me and served other gods, so I'll no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. It doesn't sound like God, does it? But it is. And why is he so upset with Israel? He's upset because he has delivered these people over and over again. And every time they go back to their false gods. So what would you say is Israel's primary motivation in their repeated repentances in the book of Judges? 
What is it that motivates their turn to God and their pursuit of God and their repentance? Well, Israel's motivation every time before and now this time is relief. They don't turn to God because they intend to stick with him. They only want deliverance. So they do the things they think is necessary to get God on their side. They'll get rid of idols. They'll confess their sin against God. They'll beg God for relief. But when we repent only for the potential good God will do for us, we repent wrong. This is what one writer called bomb shelter religion. We turn to God only when things are at DEFCON 1. Oh God, it's bad. Now I'll pray. Now I'll go to church. Now I'll try to clean my act up. If you'll only do me well. But that's not Christianity. That's paganism. When we treat God this way, we're like a teenager who shows affection to his parents only when he needs money. We're like the restaurant that cleans up their act only to impress the health inspector. And then once that dude's gone, they're back to their filthy ways. See, Israel teaches us that God's not moved by utilitarian repentance. What we learn from their failure is that true repentance is motivated by God's worth. God is moved by true repentance that responds to his goodness and greatness rather than a utilitarian repentance that just merely needs a break. So why then should you turn from your sin and turn to Jesus? Well, one reason could be this. He made you. That's good motivation. He is the creator God of all things. You don't breathe or have a heartbeat without the sovereign hand of God. But what's more, he's omnipotent. He's eternal. He's love. He's not just holy, and he's not just holy, holy. You declared this morning he is holy, holy, holy. Jesus is the one through whom God the Father has reconciled to himself all things and made peace between God and man through his blood shed on the cross. So true repentance recognizes the infinite value of God who saves us and confesses the utter worthlessness of every other idol in our heart. So we turn to God not because he'll do us well. And he does do us well. He does bless us infinitely. He does give us eternal life and abundant life. And he does forgive us and give us the righteousness of Christ. He does all of those blessing things. But our motivation is that he is God and he is worthy. That's all that we need to walk with him. True repentance is an ongoing pursuit of God And it is motivated by his infinite worth. Here's a third characteristic of true repentance in our story. True repentance is a response to God's compassion. It's a response to God's compassion. Verses 15 and 16 highlight this for us. So in this dialogue with Israel, God has told Israel, hey, call on your other gods you got so many to choose from. Now, when the Lord speaks this way, it's not as if he's giving credibility to those other gods. He knows how imaginary they are. He alone is God. 
He says, chase after those gods. See what they'll do for you. And then in verse 15, Israel responds back to the Lord. Look at what they say in verse 15. We have sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Verse 16, then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord, and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. Quiz time. Why does God deliver Israel in this instance? Open book test. Feel free to look here. What is God's reason for giving relief to Israel? Now, what we might say is we might say, well, God saw their repentance and he was moved by their repentance. After all, they got rid of the foreign gods, they served the Lord, and then God showed them some deliverance, some favor. The problem is, is this. The text doesn't tell us that God relented because of their repentance. What does the end of verse 16 tell us? Look at that line with me. It says, He could bear Israel's misery no longer. He wasn't impressed by their repentance. He wasn't swayed by their promises and commitments. He wasn't moved by the logic of their arguments. He's the compassionate God that can't stand the suffering of his people. He couldn't stand their misery any longer, and so God acts on their behalf. What is this other than the compassion of God for helpless sinners? He knows how shallow their repentance is. He knows how brief their repentance is, and still he acts on their behalf. This doesn't show weakness in our God as if he's some sort of enabling parent to a wayward child, but rather this shows the strength of God's love. And it's this kind of strength and love that will ultimately lead him to deliver you and I in the ultimate way through Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 8 tells us that God demonstrated his love for us in this while we were still like Israel. While we were still sinners. While we were still chasing every little God around us. Christ died for us. He didn't die for you because you were a clean sinner or a moral sinner or only a level 3 sinner versus a level 12 sinner. He didn't die for you because he saw the potential in you. He died for you because you were dead in your sin and he is a God of incomparable compassion. He loves you so much. We seldom connect God's love to our repentance. For the longest time, Astronomers who looked at the night sky. <laughs> they estimated the number of galaxies in the universe at 200 billion, b -b billion galaxies. But a couple of years ago, they went back to their numbers, went back to the Hubble telescope, reevaluated these images they had reran some mathematical models and they adjusted their number. Their new estimate was not 200 billion, but it increased to 2 trillion galaxies. And of those 2 trillion galaxies in the known universe, only roughly 10% of them are visible by our telescopes. The universe is so much bigger than we can imagine. 
And so it is with God's love. We trivialize God so much when we assume he doesn't like us when we're bad and he only likes us when we're good. You see, that's, that's what you and I are like. That's not what God is like. I've talked to so many Catholic friends who have lived with such tremendous guilt in their lives. And so many Pentecostal friends who have lived with such tremendous guilt. And so many Baptist friends who have lived with tremendous guilt. And so my Catholic friends feel like they have to go to Mass in order to appease the God who's always angry with them. And my Pentecostal friends feel like they've got to speak in tongues in order to appease the angry God and give evidence of the reality of their salvation. My Baptist friends covered in guilt bake casseroles in order to appease this angry God. And this was Israel's way also. We'll give you this little offering of repentance and confession if in return you'll just show us some kindness. Israel got it so wrong and so do we. Look, don't you understand that you are loved by God? And you are a sinner. And you are a rebel. You are a, a bundle of paradoxes, a hot mess, a train wreck, weak and sinful, and you are loved. A preacher sometimes gets squeamish at this. I feel like if we tell sinners God loves them, then sinners will take that as a, an excuse for sin. God loves me as, my, as I am. He affirms me in all my choices. Therefore, that's good. I, I think that's a bunch of garbage. God loves you. And his great compassion for us should lead us away from sin and into holiness. Knowing that God loves us, encourages us, motivates us, moves us to turn away from this bundle of death we've pursued and walk in the way of love and life and forgiveness and righteousness. The love of God for us should leave us astonished, not entitled, stunned, not tempted. To think that the God who knows the intimate details of two trillion galaxies knows you by name ought to leave you astounded. How could he love us like that? And yet he does. So true repentance is a response to God's compassion, God's love for us. True repentance is an ongoing pursuit of God, the God who's worthy above all, the God who is loving above all. Fourth and finally, true repentance trusts God exclusively. True repentance trusts God exclusively. So from verse 17 of chapter 10 to verse 11 of chapter 11, this truth is highlighted. We haven't talked so much about Jephthah so far. Uh, don't worry, we will make up for that next week for sure. Jephthah's story here at the start of chapter 11 is, is really interesting and just to recap, here's the quick summary of the life of Jephthah. He's from this region, this mountainous region east of the Jordan River called Gilead. His dad is named Gilead. Isn't that weird? Can you imagine if you lived in Hingham and your dad's name was Hingham? I mean, he's like the most Gilead of all the Gileads. He's got GHS on his high school diploma. He's Mr. Gilead. 
The problem is this. His dad is Captain Gilead. His mother is a prostitute. His dad had other children by his wife or wives. And those people did not accept Gilead as their, or Jephthah as their own. You're not one of our true brothers. Get out of here. So they chase Jephthah away. They reject Jephthah. He goes to a far-off land, Tob. And there he becomes the leader of this kind of ragtag military militia. And then one day, when the bad guys come to Israel again, the people of Gilead realize we need a military leader. And Jephthah is our guy. So they send a group of people to go to Jephthah, and they beg him to come to the rescue, and they offer him all these kinds of things. You'll be the head over all of us if you'll come and lead our military, deliver us from the Ammonites. Jephthah at first resists. Why, why should I come to you? You kicked me out. And then they reinforce their promises. No, we, you'll be the head guy. We love you. I always said good things about you. This guy talked bad about you. I wouldn't have it. I knew all along you were the guy for us, Jephthah. Finally, he relents and he comes along with them. What's interesting is when you compare chapter 10, Israel and God, with chapter 11, Israel and Jephthah, you get parallel accounts. Israel rejects God, they reject Jephthah. They pursue God, they pursue Jephthah. God resists, Jephthah resists. Israel begs, Israel begs. God acquiesces, Jephthah acquiesces. In all of our previous stories, God is the one who raises up the deliverer for Israel. Right? He raised up Othniel and Ehud and Deborah and Gideon. He did this. But this time is different. Israel chooses their own judge, their own military leader in Jephthah. And the judge they settle on is a tragic figure. In Jephthah, they've chosen a deeply flawed deliverer. Don't read ahead. You might not come to church next week, but I'm telling you, he is a deeply flawed character. We'll learn next week that Jephthah is a guy with Israelite words but a Canaanite heart. And Israel's mistake here is they didn't trust exclusively in God to deliver them. They tried to make their own way with Jephthah. So we learn from Israel's failure that true repentance doesn't rely on our own strength and ability but on the goodness of God to deliver us and to deliver us over and over again. So many times we treat repentance like this. You know, we grit our teeth and squint our eyes. Oh God, this time I really, really mean it. I'm not going back to those old ways. Then you get up and walk out the door and you go back to those old ways. Look, God knows you're weak and he doesn't ask you to fix these things on your own. But God the Holy Spirit dwells in every believer to do the heavy lifting for you. He will guide you into all truth. He will convict of sin. He will help you. You are not on your own in this endeavor towards holiness. True repentance is exclusive trust in God. Not sinless perfection, but unwavering trust in the God who sanctifies us. So what is repentance? From Judges 10 and 11, we've gotten a full view of of this idea. Repentance is a turn from sin and a turn to God. It's an ongoing pursuit of the God who is worthy of our lives, the God whose love for you is unfathomable, the God who is our faithful deliverer. So 
what if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning? Maybe you've been on a spiritual journey for some time. You're asking questions, trying to figure some things out for yourself. I'm glad you are, and I'm glad you've chosen to take that journey here with us. I hope you'll consider God's enormous love for you, and let that be the beginning of your faith and trust in Him. God's love for you is seen in this. Your sin, my sin, messes everything up between us and God. And there's nothing you or I can do to fix that mess that our sin has made. Every one of us are guilty. Every one of us are condemned. Every one of us, by nature, objects of wrath. Because He is holy and we are definitely not. But God can change that. And He desires to change that. He doesn't want you to live in this sinful spiritual misery forever. He wants you to walk with Him and to know the freedom that comes from trusting in His love. He loves you so much that He came to us in the flesh. We knew Him as Jesus. And He died in your place for your sins. The punishment that your sin, my sin requires, Jesus suffered that punishment totally, entirely, not in some small amount, but he took all of that penalty on himself in his flesh. Jesus really lived, really died on a cross. Three days later, he really rose from the dead, and that's why his life, his story, his death is so different from every other. By his resurrection, we know that the things he said are true, and the things said about him are true, and every promise he made is true, and he promises to rescue, to save everyone who trusts in him. You're saved from the penalty of sin and you're saved to eternal abundant life when you trust in Jesus. So it's possible that today you're kind of like that cruise ship we talked about at the beginning. You've been slowing to this turn for a long time. It could be that today you complete the turn You say goodbye to your sin. You say hello to your Savior. And your life is radically changed forever because you trust in Jesus to save you. He'd do that today. At the end of our service, we're going to have some incredible people standing over here. We call them our prayer team. They would love to talk to you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You can grab me, any one of the pastors. Or maybe you're here with someone who you know is a believer and you trust and love them. Talk to them. And today, your life can be changed by trusting in Christ. As a believer, repentance is a part of our ongoing growth in holiness. So God's love for you is so great. He's going to take you as you are, but He's not going to leave you as you are. We cannot come into contact with the God of the universe and walk away unchanged. So when you evaluate your life, Christian, in light of the text we've read today, Where does the Holy Spirit press in? Where is the change needed? Let's do better this morning than just say in some generic sense, we need to repent. Let's name the area. This is where it is. My mouth is out of control. My flesh is out of control. My appetites are driving the bus. My angerness, my bitterness, my unforgiveness. These are the places where God time and again presses in and leads us towards holiness and away from sin. So the journey of repentance utterly changes a person. God turns liars into truth-tellers. Thieves become honest workers. 
The lewd become pure. The gossip becomes an encourager. The miser becomes generous. The dead come alive in Christ. May the love of Christ turn you to a life in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for a salvation like this, one that's not based on our work, our effort, our merit, but based only on the glory, holiness, work of Jesus Christ. Father, in what we've read and studied this morning, we've seen a very negative example. But I'm grateful that we can learn from Israel's mistakes and we can see your character clearly and beautifully in this. Thank you for being a God of love. Thank you for being the God who loves sinners like us. Thank you for being the God that loves sinners so much that you made a way for us to not be sinners anymore, to not be defined by death anymore, but to walk with you in faith and life. Father, this morning, through your word, you've spoken clearly to our hearts. Holy Spirit, give us courage today and an urgency to respond in faith. For my brothers and sisters in here, Lord, guide us in our ongoing repentance. Speak clearly. I know that you have through your word. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, so that we would apply this word to our hearts. And today would be another turning of many turnings in our ongoing pursuit of holiness. Father, thank you for your love for us, which is grander than two trillion galaxies, a love that is more amazing than we can write about, than our poets can write about, than our singers can sing about than our storytellers can tell about, a love that takes the dead and brings them to life. For this, we love you, we praise you, and we follow you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.